Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today's episode is the second in our series featuring Joe Pfeiffer's interviews with top healthcare CFOs. Today, Joe is talking with Dennis Dolan of Mayo Clinic. His perspective on leading finance in one of the nation's top-ranking hospitals is compelling. Enjoy the conversation. Well, I'm thrilled today to have Dennis Dolan join me for our podcast. Dennis is the CFO at Mayo Health. I'm in Rochester and several other locations around the country. I'm sure a few listeners have heard of them. And he's also a board member of HFMA. So with that, Dennis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. It's, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm an avid listener of the uh, podcast series, so uh, it really is a thrill to be here. So you're on your third year on the board. And so how has that experience been? First, I'd say it's been both a privilege and a pleasure to serve HFMA, particularly at this time of disruption and challenge. I'd say, secondly, it's been terrific to get to know you better, Joe. I knew you uh, certainly in the industry and and networking at meetings, but it's been a real pleasure working with you and, and the HFMA leadership team. And then third, the opportunity to participate in a different business challenge uh, in a running a professional association has been uh, really enlightening. And it's clear to me that healthcare is not the only industry that's going through a creative destruction cycle here. There's lots going on in the association industry as well. It uh, reminds you of the old story of the duck on water, we're on top, or the swan <laughs> on water, where it looks calm and, and, and controlled, and underneath it's paddling like crazy. That's very true, very true. <laughs> There's an element to that. Yeah, very, so, very uh, true. I like to think of HFMA in a lot of ways as a lagging indicator of what's going on in the industry, because so many trends that happen in healthcare show themselves or play themselves out in the association space, but after the fact. So that's been fascinating for me to learn as the industry goes through all kinds of transitions. And the fact is that we run an association and we're not a healthcare organization, but those same trends impact us. I'm sure you're seeing that. I I completely agree with that assessment. Yes. Yeah. So um, also you've had a, a, uh, you're at Mayo and we're going to talk about that in a second, but you had a great run at Banner uh, Health in Phoenix. And aside from the move from a really hot uh, geographic location to a very cold geographic location, I'm sure there was a major transition for you. You know, now you're at Mayo, known as one of the, if not the premier health system in the country. So tell us a little bit about both that transition, but also what's, what do you see from a CFO's perspective? What do you see as special about Mayo? I'd say what's, you know, the difference is first, it is the Mayo Clinic. Uh, You know, it's one of those few healthcare enterprises that's a part of the American story. I don't know if you saw the Ken Burns documentary that was released last year, Faith, Hope, and Science, but I think it chronicled the story well from its start as a, uh, with a reluctant country physician, W.W. Mayo, partnering with a Franciscan order of sisters to uh, build a hospital in Rochester, Minnesota. And that, then through the work of his sons, Will and Charlie, became you know, the preeminent place for medical advancement in the early uh, 20th century. And you know they, their foresight in applying science to the craft of medicine, their uh, curiosity for better ways, continuous improvement, and then in giving away their fortune and their clinic to a nonprofit foundation that would outlive both of them is all part of that story. It's a terrific place to be, and I, I've, I think I've gotten used to the 150-year heritage and legacy that uh, that all of that that uh, provides. And so the first the first big difference I've noticed is Mayo Clinic today thrives as a as a three shield practice education practice and research. And that research, and it's more than a billion dollars a year at, at Mayo Clinic. And, and th- that really is the first large difference is that that investment in research is it really brings a, um, a challenge of plenty to the table is that we've got lots of, you know, which, which of these new innovations and these ideas do we invest in and sustain and which do we not do that? 
And so I, I'd say outside of a research organization, some, uh, some uh, you know, a medical uh, center that's uh, not doing research, I, the shelves aren't, aren't as full as those, of those sorts of ideas. And so that uh, it's really, a, as again, is a challenge of plenty at Mayo. It's interesting. And I think just in talking to you even before this, that, you know, there's, you know, physicians have a major influence on any major health system in this country. Right. There's no doubt about it. And in every hospital I've been in, there's a major influence by physicians. But I think there's a difference between having physician influence and having a physician-led organization. And and I think even as health systems that are physician-led goes, Mayo probably has a larger influence by not just the medical staff, but the physicians that are leading. So tell us a little bit about what that means for your role as a CFO. And then also, what does that mean to patients? And what's the difference between a physician-led organization for your the patients that you serve? Uh, it's a great question, and honestly, part of the discernment on my part before leaving uh, what I would call more the more traditional fu- structure of healthcare to go to a physician-led, physician-driven organization. And um, I, what I can tell you is that without hesitation, the physician-driven DNA uh, really does make a difference. I've seen both the administratively-led and the physician-led models firsthand, and it's not too hard to identify the advantages of the physician-led model. I just start with first the empirical performance on excellence indicators. Note that Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, MD Anderson, others physician-led organizations really are routinely atop that best ranking list. Secondly, I'd, I'd highlight the player-coach advantage of of physician leadership, and maybe that's the most important one: is that the people, if you're a physician executive, you all they all, at Mayo they all maintain a practice schedule, and many of them a significant practice schedule while they're in in leadership roles. And so the decisions they make are infused with that knowledge that they'll have to live very intimately with whatever the results are. They also work shoulder to shoulder with the people, their, their colleagues, their peers that uh, have to do the same. And that leads to consultation, collaboration, and uh, probably generally better and more sustainable decision making. One other thing at, at Mayo Clinic, and I think at these longstanding physician-led organizations, is that um, the leaders are chosen by the practice. It's a bit of a democracy, representative democracy, and it's always from within. Uh, and not appointed by an outside body. And so in other words, you've got to be highly regarded. You've got to be a colleague that's well regarded in the peer group uh, to be placed in a leadership role. And those kinds of individuals would be the last to put the reputations at risk. So you have a very high degree of care and inclusion in those decision makings. What does it mean for me as a CFO? I spend less time worrying about the performance of the clinical practice because these physician leaders know exactly what's going on. They're highly attuned to what's what drives the practice, and I don't spend much time worrying about that. It does take a greater investment of my time in decision-making. The um, collegial nature of physicians and their interest in cultivating consensus, it does lead to longer paths for decision-making. There's a higher bar for financial acumen. Physician leaders are clinicians and scientists. They're people with advanced degrees, come from the finest colleges of the world. And uh, they're used to and depend on evidence and precision and analyses. And so my work's got to meet those exacting standards. And, uh, you know, be the first to say we don't always hit that mark, but we certainly try. And I think those are the big, those are the big differences. I love the player-coach analogy because that speaks volumes to, to what they do. And, uh, you know, they're data-driven folks. The fact that they're scientists, I think, is actually a really good thing. And, and you know, so many times people in healthcare... Um, you know, and I came up in an era starting off where there wasn't good relationship between, quote, administration and the physicians. Then that evolved to, well, it was a better relationship, but, you know, we couldn't satisfy, you know, the data. And I think the fact is if there are people too, they're just scientists and and scientists need accurate data. And I think that's an easy mark for us to reach. And that takes away some of that intimidation that 
we often feel in our industry. Would you agree with that assessment? No, I think I, I completely agree with that. And it really is, a, it's a, you've heard me speak for, so with some frequency about the science of healthcare finance, right? And that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of where I get that whole perspective of, you know, we're, we should all be data-driven. We should be scientists yeah. at what we do. We're scientists too, and they're scientists. And so there's way more common ground that sometimes I think we in healthcare give credit to. And I think you've struck that common ground. I love it. I, I think you're absolutely right. So this is a series uh, uh, with and about CFOs. I'm talking with six or seven of the best around the country, which is just absolutely thrilling for me. I'm asking all of you, to what extent your day-to-day job as a CFO has changed in recent years? Well, first, I have to say thank you, Joe, for including me among the six or seven best uh, CFOs or leading CFOs. I'm not sure about the metrics, but I appreciate the acknowledgement. But on your point, the, the kinds of areas... I, I said it, so it's got to be, be true. How's, right? that, is that, how's that for a scientist? <laughs> Leaves a little bit to be desired, but let's, we'll right, just, let's keep right. going. <laughs> but it works for this, it right? It works for this, right? Um, so I would say you know, the kinds of areas reporting to me hasn't changed very much. Remains pretty traditional. It's finance and accounting, investment, treasury management, revs cycle, those sorts of things. But that said, I'm, I'm seeing a much greater use of agile staffing and project-based work to accomplish a broader range of outcomes, and as well as the dispersion of finance team members into more areas, uh, leading to more involvement as team members rather than just being solely accountable for that activity. Now, Mayo, that's manifesting itself in emerging areas of business development in platform plays and technology and digital plays and our growing international operations. That's terrific. So shift gears a little bit. You know, we hear this word innovation all the time now. And my fear is that it's becoming one of those buzzwords that loses its meaning. Mayo is all about innovation. And you said that in your introductory comments. So you have a significant innovation function and innovation center, I'm sure, innovation thought process. Can you just expand on what that means in terms of your role as the CFO? Yeah, so as I've already mentioned, we've got a billion dollars in annual research activity, and that obviously creates a very rich pipeline of innovation and opportunity. In fact, our annual royalty revenue is approaching $100 million, and we're invested in well over 100 startup enterprises. So it was one of the attractions to me when I came to Mayo Clinic, uh, participating in the new innovations kind of on the frontier of medical science. So it's it's an area I'm quite interested in and quite attached to and, and do spend some time there. But on, that, on a practical basis, it does require frequent attention on individual transactions as well as on the overall portfolio. You've got to maintain an overall plan for funding research and commercialization and then managing that portfolio of opportunities. They have, they've got a wide variety of risk profiles and investment horizons, and it's certainly far different than our core operations. And that clearly needs to be factored into the enterprise business planning. So it's it's sort of a separate but equal uh, state where you've got this innovation piece off to the side that's not self-funding. It requires uh, continued investment of capital. You've got your core operations, but the, the, the two have got to meet, uh, and they do intersect with some frequency. So I have a couple of questions that I'd like to pursue that bring in some things that you've talked about. The fact that you're physician-led and you're dealing with scientists, the, just the nature of Mayo in, in we in our industry as going through all kinds of digital transformation, and we are too as HFMA, but the healthcare industry is. So can you talk a little bit about you're dealing with these scientists, you're dealing with the high-end innovation, you're dealing with the best of the best, and yet they're still subject to digital transformation. So how's that agenda fitting in at Mayo Clinic? That's a great question, and I hope I'm not betraying any confidences here, but um, it's, it's challenging. I mean, uh, digitizing the practice is, is a real challenge. And at a conceptual level, everybody gets it. We've got complete buy-in at the conceptual level. But when you consider 
frankly, it's it's the digital advancement, the digital conversion of a practice is could be so perfect for a Mayo, which is a destination medicine purveyor. Digital allows you to suspend a geography and mileage and distance. And so it's perfect for us. But even with all of those advantages, when you get to the point of actually going through the in- intricate design of how does this affect my, what I do as a day-to-day uh, medical consultant and a physician practitioner, it's, it's absolutely monumental change. And so those, all of those, those elements are really hard, and we're just starting it. I would say I think we uh, at Mayo probably agree that we've been a little slow to the, to, to the mark. On, uh, on digital, but we we realize, recognize that we're a little slow off the mark, but we need to we need to catch up to the pack pretty quickly. Interesting. So similar, based on the same kind of environment that we just described, uh, you know, innovation and you know, physician led and scientists and everything we've talked about. You know, analytics is also a major uh, push in our industry, and the investment of health systems in analytic functions, sometimes actuaries, not actuaries, but they're still you know, hiring for curiosity and driving to a data-driven set of analytics. So tell us how, again, in your environment, how does that fit into the the push for analytics? You know, it's a, for, for us, we, we announced uh, earlier this year a partnership with Google. And so we're migrating all of our data in a very secure fashion, yeah. <laughs> very secure fashion. Let me repeat yeah, that. I know that security is, yeah, patient data security is probably as tight at Mayo as anywhere in the country, correct? I, I think I can, I'm firsthand yeah. knowledge of that. <laughs> yes, it's very secure. And we pay incredible attention to that. Right. But we, so we've uh, established a cloud hosting and analytics uh, joint venture partnership with uh, Google. And um, we've just started to start down the path with the Google uh, team. And it's frankly amazing some of the tool sets they've. In fact, we, we selected Google for the quality of their tool sets to apply them to our very significant and rich data sets around clinical, clinical performance and clinical efficacy. And their tool sets will allow us to uh, accelerate and expand uh, the clinical insights that uh, we'll be able to deliver on the analytics front. That's that, you know, you step back from the outside world looking at it, it, it would feel to me to be an intimidating thing to try to do both digital transformation and analytics in that environment where it's, it's again, it's, it's uh, so physician-led and that would seem to me to be a major challenge to do it well and do it right because of the, of the scientific nature that they, that they are. So thank you for those answers. That's, that's terrific. I want to shift gears a little bit here. And we've talked about a lot of technical things. Uh, we've talked about, you know, scientists and analytics and, you know, and that fits into what the general public might think that a CFO's job in that it's purely technical in nature. Yet we know that your job is full of people and relationship issues. So how has your role begun to incorporate more of a soft skill focus in terms of the skills of the people or culture management, change management that plays into you getting your agenda accomplished? Soft skills, uh, particularly as you get as you get to scale in organizations, you can create a lot of damage with a, without the soft skills. So we pay a lot of attention to that. I, for the first time in my life, I've got a in my professional life that is, I've got a, an HR business partner that's with at my side almost constantly. Um, Elbow, and I've you got say, don't say Elbow, that. Elbow, say, does, yeah, say this, do that. Uh, it's a, it's a it's a tremendous partnership. So there's that's terrific. I'd also I've also got access to. Uh, resident change management expertise, and so we, and and they're built into every project that we do, and so and I've uh, I've had a little bit of an awakening myself as I recognize change management as a discipline and a profession almost unto itself, and so the infusion of those concepts and that that uh, let's just call it the science of change management into change and transformation is is uh, is just an absolutely critical ingredient. 
That's incredible. Yeah. So two final questions before we wrap up our time here today. If you could project what the healthcare CFO will look like in, say, I don't know, five or 10 years, what changes do you see on the horizon? I spent quite a bit of time thinking about that. In fact, we're, as a lot of health systems and a lot of uh, provider organizations are doing, is that we're looking out into the future. We, our particular effort is called the 2030 plan. We've got a workforce planning dimension of that. As part of that workforce planning, we're thinking exactly about this. And so what the conclusions early in the process is that we're very confident that the underlying processes and the teams are going to change. You know, even ignoring something crazy like the imposition of a single payer solution, we're going to, I see revenue cycle is something that's pretty ripe for either autonomous processing or outsourcing. Uh, finance and accounting will be significantly impacted by technology. We'll almost certainly need to radically reduce cycle time, improve the precision of our insights, redirect our attention uh, to the future from the past, and probably do all of this with tool sets that potentially run themselves or with very light oversight. So I think there will probably be fewer of us by virtue of the fact that we'll be consolidating and automating what we do. I think we're going to have to learn new business models or be replaced by those that uh, that can learn them. That the hospital-centric healthcare delivery model is likely, it's already in the, on the path to being replaced by virtual and in-home options, except for ex- really extraordinary care circumstances. Surgery probably still requires you to be to leave your home uh, for the foreseeable future, but you know we'll see. But so navigating all of that transitional is going to require advanced knowledge of all those new business models uh, and insights into those that are worthy of disproportionate investment. I'm not too proud to borrow and steal from those that have gone before us, like retail or autos or media. Uh, and uh, we're not the first industry that's been disrupted. And we, I think we can learn from them. At the risk of oversimplifying everything that you just said, setting aside the numbers of how many CFOs and titles and, and those kinds of things, to me, the job of of finance is becoming more intellectual. It's much deeper thinking, uh, more analytical, and much less clerical. So yes, in total, we'll need fewer people, but the people that are in healthcare finance are needing to operate at a much higher intellectual level than in the past. Do you think that's a fair projection? Yeah, I, th- I think that that is true, or at least you'll, you'll have to operate at a, at a more intense level on a, maybe a broader set of things because there'll be fewer of us. This isn't a perfect analogy, but, you know, there's very few tellers in banks anymore, right? Right. And that was, uh, and there will probably be very few people doing close the books accounting in the future, but we'll need probably more analysts to figure out what the insights coming from those numbers are, right? Sure. Yeah. The leadership at Mayo is, is pressing on finance to, to divert our attention, as I mentioned before, to the future, look out the front of the car as opposed to the rear view mirror, and and let's figure out how do we predict what's happening? How can we impose a, an airline-like demand modeling uh, method on our on our clinical operations to really be efficient at what we're doing? And, and the difference between retrospective financial reporting, which is important and necessary, will never go away, but the difference between between that and using data and predictive analytics to talk about what will happen in the future, that's a different mindset. Totally different mindset, different set of skills, probably different tool sets. And by the way, you know, the retrospective financial reporting, who landed on it's got to be done 12 times a year. Fair enough. Right. Why should we wait for 12 times a year? Let's do it. Daily. Daily. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, there's some analytics that could come out daily that, Absolutely. Um, and you know, who said that we can't close the books? The the moment the end of the month is over, if right. you want to have a monthly view of it. Exactly. I mean, all those kind of possibilities, which seemed unthinkable. Uh, I remember in, in one of my CFO jobs of moving the month end close from whatever it was, 15 or 20 days to about three days. And 
people looked at me like I had one eye in the middle of my forehead. <laughs> and um, we got there. But uh, I, you know, I think even that is going to be archaic here soon. And, right. and uh, pioneers like you, Joe, often scoff, but you're usually right, right? <laughs> oh, fair enough. So, last question: If you could say one thing to our members, or maybe even the industry at large, about what we should do to either improve the industry performance or change some of the negative rhetoric that knows about healthcare, what would what would that one thing be? Well, it's a it's a great question to close on, Joe. And it's uh, you and I have spoken about this frequently. It feels like we're an industry and a profession that sort of routinely laments about the status quo, you know, explains eloquently why we can't change, and then criticizes proposals to improve the system. And we talk about it at at our HFMA board meetings and elsewhere, but we're just not very good at proposing our own solutions. And we're the industry insiders. We're more than likely to have the best information available on what will and won't work. And we can probably more readily tweak proposals to make them better. So whether it's surprise billing, price transparency, uh, pricing in general, understandable billing, all of those things, you know, these are all our problems of our making. Um, and we're responding to the environment, I get it, but we've, we've created these problems. So it's our challenge. Let's figure out a way to do it and propose it ourselves or at least take an active role as ra- rather than a passive one. Well, you're speaking to my heart because we have some information or some, some reports coming that will actually just a, a regeneration of previous reports. But our guidance about price transparency and patient financial communications and the whole interaction with patients about healthcare finance issues. And that's being called to question in our society. We're going to have some more discussion about that for our members that about how we need to adhere to that and step up our game in that performance. I will tell you this. I'll end this with this with a compliment. Thank God I've not had to have been a patient at Mayo, but I have been to your campus several times to meet with you. And I can tell just from coming there that there is a patient focus. It's a big place. And I think both times I went to visit you, I made the same mistake and I followed my GPS on my phone and, and I walked into the wrong building. As <laughs> soon as the moment somebody sees that you feel lost there, somebody's right there to say, can I help you find something? Right. And then they got me to your office. And that's a, uh, that's a sign of a deep rooted cultural focus on patients. And that was my experience at Mayo Clinic. That warms my heart to hear that because that's the way it's supposed to work. Well, I got to tell you, you started out with a compliment to me. It's really been great to get to know you over these years. I will tell a quick story uh, about you. Um, but when I first met you, Dennis, I just thought in my mind, ha, huh, this has got to be a fake. How could somebody be so nice and so, you know, so gentlemanly? And I thought there's got to be, what's the sinister thing behind that? And I got to tell you what I've learned over the years, that you are the consummate gentleman and the, one of the nicest people I know. And it's sincere and it's right from the heart. And I mean that. And it's just been terrific to get to know you. And it's just been an honor for me to allow our listeners to hear how smart and engaging that you are. So thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Wow, thank you. I'm glad this is this is a recording audio only because I'm blushing. Yeah, well, thank you, Dennis, and we'll see you soon. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Special thanks to Nick Hutt, Mary Mirabelli, and Rick Gundling for their help with this production. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Finally, we always welcome your feedback and invite you to reach out to us with your questions and comments at podcast at hfma.org.